Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York. This week on the pod, why traditional fermentation methods may have met their match in antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Astronomers are extremely excited about a seemingly impossible object. And there's a new kind of computer that harnesses the laws of thermodynamics. Plus an update from our favorite chunky little water bear, how microscopic tardigrades manage to survive all the hazards of modern living. But first up, various teams around the world have been trying to clone rhesus monkeys for decades. Over the years, a few clones have been born, but haven't tended to live for very long. However, now a team in China has reported that they have managed to clone a rhesus monkey called Retro, and he is still alive several years later. Assistant News Editor Sam Wong is here. Hi, Sam. Hi. This sounds really quite incredible. Yeah, it's a groundbreaking achievement for sure. This monkey is now over three years old and the team said that their medical checkups haven't revealed any issues. So in other words, this is the first healthy cloned rhesus monkey. But it's not a complete triumph. Retro was cloned from a fetal cell rather than an adult cell like Dolly the sheep, which is kind of cheating. Why is it cheating? Why are fetal cells not proper cloning, as you might think? Well, the aim of cloning is to create genetically identical copies of an individual. So some people are now cloning their favorite pets, for instance, or horses that are especially good at racing or jumping. But to do this, you need to be able to take cells from the adult animals and clone them. There's no way to get fetal cells from an adult. So in that sense, we're not quite all the way there yet when it comes to cloning primates like monkeys. But it still sounds like it's quite a significant step forward. Can you tell us how this team, you know, at least managed to clone rhesus monkeys from fetal cells when so many others have failed to do even that much? Yeah, so it's quite an elaborate process, I'll warn you. What they found is that one reason why clones were not surviving is that there were abnormalities in the cloned placentas. So the new thing they did is provide the clones with non-cloned placentas. So um, a lot of people might not realize that the the placenta is really an an organ of the, it derives from the embryo. It's not part of the mother. It's kind of part of the fetus almost. An embryo develops so that one part of it becomes the placenta, one part becomes the fetus. Mm -hmm. So um, what they did was they took a non-cloned embryo, removed the part that develops into the fetus, and then replaced it with the equivalent part from a cloned embryo. That means the embryos that were implanted were actually a mix of two different embryos with the cloned part going to become the fetus and the non-cloned part turning into the placenta. Yeah, you're right. That's pretty elaborate. But why do it at all then? Why go to all that trouble to create a cloned monkey? 
Well, what the team in China told us is that they're doing it to create animals that can be used for research. So let's say a lab has an individual animal that develops heart disease. If they can make genetically identical clones of that individual, then they can test whether the disease was caused by the genetics or by its diet or something else. And they can also test potential treatments. So in that way, clones can be really valuable for medical research. But of course, many people regard the use of monkeys for medical research as unethical, and their use now is very tightly regulated in some countries. Yeah, we're certainly in controversial territory, which brings me to the obvious question. What does this tell us about human cloning and the bioethical controversies around that? If suddenly some egotistical billionaire, which we have a few on the planet, <laughs> wanted to create a copy of themselves, could that be done with this new technique? Well, the first thing to say is that, like, as you uh, mentioned, it would be totally unethical to try it because there really is a high risk that if any child was born, it would have serious health issues. Not to mention that creating cloned human babies is also illegal in many countries. That said, no one can really know if this new method would help improve the success of human cloning because we just don't know if the issues are the same as with monkeys. As far as we know, no one has ever tried to make human clones in any way. But the fact that the team hasn't managed to clone monkeys from adult cells, even with this elaborate process, suggests that cloning an adult human might be really difficult as well. And what's more, one of the big problems for anybody who wants to create human clones would be obtaining human eggs. With this method, you need twice as many eggs because you're combining embryos. And in a way, that actually makes things harder. So anyone who wants to make a human clone would probably need hundreds of human eggs. And that would, that would be difficult, even if you're an unethical billionaire. Korean dish called kimchi may be a staple of your diet or even just an occasional restaurant treat. And many home fermenters may make their own food, kimchi or otherwise, from fermented vegetables. Oh yeah, and cheese. That's also a product of fermenting. But there's a new pilot study out of Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, that suggests that despite having been very safe throughout history, this ancient food preparation technique may now be worsening the problem of antibiotic-resistant microbes spreading across the globe. James Woodford joins us from Australia to discuss this new research. Hey, James. Hi, Christy. Nice to be here. James, I've always lived with the understanding that fermented foods like kimchi or kombucha, for example, were not just safe, but actually good for us. I think many people will be surprised to hear there might, in fact, be a catch. Tell us what's going on. Yes, indeed. Uh, just let me unpack what the findings are, though. Firstly, Hua Wang at Ohio State University and her colleagues looked for antibiotic-resistant microbes in four artisan cheeses and then 10 types of kimchi, which is made with salted and fermented vegetables. The food samples were all bought from either local or national retail stores or Japanese or Korean restaurants in the Columbus, Ohio area. They found that nine of the kimchi samples and all of the cheese samples contained antibiotic-resistant bacteria, some of which have the potential to cause gut-related symptoms or even more severe health issues if they enter the bloodstream. They also found some potentially problematic varieties of lactic acid bacteria, which help drive the fermentation process. But some of the ones they found in these foods were similarly, similarly resistant to some antibiotics and could also cause issues if they enter the bloodstream. Yeah, that's definitely not exciting to hear. Was there any evidence, though, that these bacteria were actually setting up shop in the people who ate them, you know, sticking around and staying for the long haul? 
Yes, that's a, a great question that the team explored in the second phase of their study. They looked at 36 healthy adults, half of whom were told to eat a diet with large amounts of fermented food, while the other half ate a diet free of fermented foods. After 10 weeks, those who ate the fermented food had an increase in the level of genes associated with antibiotic-resistant bacteria in their stools. And there was no statistical change in the non-fermented food group. And for the third part of the study, the researchers made their own kimchi in the lab and also found that this also inevitably contained antibiotic-resistant microbes. So James, what do the researchers say is going on here? How are these antibiotic-resistant microbes ending up in fermented foods to start out with? Christy, this is the part that I found really alarming. These antibiotic-resistant microbes are now so prevalent that they are just in the environment. They're in the water, in the air, and on the vegetables we want to prepare into fermented foods. Because, by definition, fermentation is about encouraging microbe activity, it may accelerate the process of antibiotic resistance. Wang says, while healthy people may not get sick from eating these fermented foods, those with gastrointestinal issues or who are immune suppressed are definitely at risk of becoming ill with something that could then be resistant to antibiotic treatment, particularly if multi-drug resistant microbes enter their bloodstream. But another problem is that these antibiotic resistant microbes from fermented foods can make their way into the environment via sewage, perpetuating the cycle that we're seeing around the world. Definitely not good. So we've been talking about kimchi and these artisanal cheeses that they were studying. But what about other fermented foods? Like, again, I mentioned kombucha, there's sauerkraut or just non-artisanal dairy products, your more ordinary grocery store gouda. Yeah, the, the non-artisanal cheeses are probably okay because Wang has been working with the, the industry for a long time to make sure that they're okay. But she suspects all homemade fermented vegetable products will have antibiotic-resistant microbes. However, 20 years ago, she began working with mainstream cheese manufacturers where antibiotic resistance was a massive problem. So pasteurization and careful screening of starter cultures has largely solved the problem in that mainstream cheese industry. She and her team are now moving to take this new research into animal studies and recommending new processes for anyone fermenting vegetables, either at home or commercially. As you mentioned at the beginning, she thinks these ancient fermentation processes were traditionally safe, but sadly, they now need to be adapted across the board for this inherently modern problem of global antibiotic resistance. Got it. Well, thanks so much for joining us, James. No worries. Great to be here. How do you feel about a journey to space? In our latest episode of Culture Lab, reporter Leah Crane talks to astronaut Christina Koch. It's all about breaking records as a woman in space, what space smells like, and why human bowling is the best fun you can have on the International Space Station. That is, believe it or not, already in your feed. And if you want even more escape, Escape Pod is here for you. That's our delightful news-free celebration of how the world works. And the next episode is all things music. How birds can play jazz, the music hiding in scientific data, and possibly the biggest question of all, why do we humans love music so much? What I want to do is make the case that 
musical roots are deeply embedded in non-human animals. So first, gorillas. Oh yeah, uh, like that one from the Cadbury's advert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like that. That's coming next Tuesday. Same pod channel, same pod time. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Next up is a mystery from the depths of outer space. This time, it's an object that's been found which could either be the largest neutron star we've ever detected or the smallest black hole measured. There's an awful lot of mystery in this one, and the only part that's not mysterious is that we've got reporter Alex Wilkins here to tell us about it. Hi, Alex. Hello. So often when astronomers find something, we have two options, one that it turns out to be something really interesting or the other option where it's quite dull. But in this case, it seems like there's no dull options. Either would be pretty exciting. Yeah, so there are kind of no downsides here. And to explain, I'll, I'll need to explain a little bit about the difference between a black hole and a neutron star, uh, in case you're not familiar. So a neutron star forms when a star runs out of fuel, collapses under its own gravity, and leaves behind an ultra-dense core. Scientists think that these cores must remain below a certain mass, around 2.2 times the mass of the sun, or they collapse even further, creating a black hole. And as we all know, a black hole has a centre that's both infinitely small and infinitely dense. But there's this strange mass gap between the upper limit of a neutron star and the seeming lower limit of a black hole. And we've never seen a black hole directly with fewer than five solar masses, possibly until now. <laughs> well, so don't leave us hanging. Have we now? Is it possibly or for sure? Uh, it looks like it, but there's lots of caveats. So a group of astronomers using the Meerkat radio telescope in South Africa were measuring a pulsar, which is a neutron star with a really magnetized field that spits out pulses of light on super regular millisecond intervals. The astronomers found that these pulses were being warped by something really massive, around 2.5 solar masses they calculated, that the pulsar was orbiting around, right in that mass gap that I described earlier. So this something massive can only be a neutron star or a black hole, and either answer would be really interesting. Yeah, it sounds like it. So we either have a neutron star that's too big or a black hole that's too small. Alex, where do we go from either of those possibilities? Yeah, so obviously we need more information, but we can kind of map out what it would look like in either. So if it's a neutron star, then it would be bigger than any current theories allow for, or more massive, I should say, and would probably require new physics to explain how it can be that massive and not collapse. We really don't understand well the physics of such extremely dense matter, like in a supermassive neutron star like that. And if it's a black hole, then it would be an unprecedented observational opportunity. When I was speaking to the researcher, he described the pulsar that was orbiting around it as a ludicrously precise measurement device. that You've got an orbit around the black hole and it's not going anywhere. It's going to be there for the next billion years. So you can test all of these aspects of general relativity that we just couldn't before. I really love it when scientists describe things as ludicrous, Alex. I mean, that's how you know they're really, really, really excited. 
Do we have any way to work out which possibility we've actually landed in? Uh, sadly, it's really hard. Um, <laughs> so the researchers are planning to take many more years' observations with different and new telescopes. If it's a black hole, then they might see the pulsar's orbit change over time as the black hole drags space-time around it, a little bit like how a ship drags smaller boats in its wake. Or if it's a neutron star, then they might be able to detect its light with really sensitive instruments, but they haven't seen anything so far. And we know that neutron stars are really, really faint. So we need to get exceptionally lucky to see one if it is there. Next up, we are talking about a new, potentially more efficient type of computer called a thermodynamic computer. It does its calculations with some help from tiny, random changes in electrical currents. You'll see what we mean in a minute. But it was unveiled by the startup Normal Computing earlier this week. Carmela Padovich Callahan is here to help us understand. Carmela, is this in fact a normal computer with normal capabilities? In some ways it is. If you were to look at it, it would not be all that different than what's inside of your regular computer already. You would see a circuit board with some pretty standard electronics components wired into it. But where it's different is in how it computes. Which is where that thermodynamic bit of thermodynamic computer comes in, I assume? Yeah, exactly. Thermodynamics is the branch of physics that essentially gives us rules for how physical systems reach equilibrium with heat or energy. Think about a warm cup of tea. You leave it on the counter and eventually will reach the same temperature of the room if you leave it undisturbed. And the way you get to equilibrium, like that cup equilibrating with the temperature of the room, is often by small fluctuations in the system. So think about particles jiggling or temperature jumping up and down slightly, very small random changes that eventually get you to a very stable steady state. And the computer that normal computing built uses exactly this equilibration process to carry out its computations. They run the computer with electric currents that are not perfectly even or controlled, but they have fluctuations in amplitude. And then they let the computer respond to them following the rules of thermodynamics. This does sound very different from how computers usually work, which is much more about pushing electricity through very specific circuits to carry out calculations. It really is. One of the researchers I spoke to told me that the whole idea of thermodynamic computing is to be less prescriptive with how we build hardware and just sort of take advantage of what the computer already naturally wants to do, so to speak. So if you push electricity through the computer and its natural response as a physical system is to reach equilibrium, why not just make the computation process exactly identical to the process that it will have to go through to get to equilibrium anyway? So this is why theoretical models strongly suggest that thermodynamic computers could run programs as complicated as some types of AI and not use the remarkable amounts of energy that regular computers right now are using to do that exact same thing. Yeah, that would be very useful indeed. AI uses a lot of energy, especially the biggest AIs like ChatGPT. Have they used the computer to actually do anything useful yet, or is this just at the very, very early stages? It is sort of in the proof of concept stage, but they have used it. They've done some things that conventional computers have trouble with just at the small scale. So one use that they've found for this computer is to calculate the inverse of something called a mathematical matrix. It's sort of a, a number problem that turns up in a lot of optimization problems and pretty much any numerical thing you may ever want to do if you are a scientist or an engineer, this will come up and it can be difficult to solve. So this is a, a good first step for this computer. But they also ran 
Several programs are important for building and using generative AI algorithms. The most exciting one is called uncertainty quantification, and one of the researchers from Normal told me that it could eventually help build AI that know how much they don't know. Right now, these calculations are sort of in early stages, but Normal Computing's big bet is that a bigger version of the computer that they have built already could really do harder problems and really get those energy efficiency benefits that theories suggest are there. How easy will that be? Like, What's between us and a future where we run AI on these type of energy efficient hardware? I mean, according to folks at Normal Computing, the only barrier is several years of making the computer bigger and more complex. Their timeline is sort of in the three to five year range, and they're they're really confident about it. And the thing to note is really that right now the computer has eight circuits. So it can only do problems at a certain level of difficulty where the savings or the, or the benefits and the energy savings are not that prominent just yet. But they have a plan for how to move forward. And again, I want to stress that like they've done so much theoretical work for how you're going to encode all sorts of problems, including AI, into these circuits. That really just seems like the next step is to sort of go into the lab or the manufacturing foundry and just crank it out. Go out and build the thing. Go out and build the thing. <laughs> To round it off this week, a brand new study has come out about one of new scientists' all-time favorite animals, tardigrades. We know they can survive some of the harshest conditions the planet has to offer, but now we have a better idea as to how. Reporter Chen Lai has the story. Hey, Chen. Hi. So for those not yet initiated into our very cool tardigrade fan club, can you tell us a little bit about these animals, what they are, what makes them so fascinating? Sure. So tardigrades, which are sometimes referred to as water bears, are these microscopic eight-legged invertebrates that usually measure around 0.5 millimetres at full size. So super tiny. The water bear name is probably because close up they look like kind of blobby and rotund with little snouts that are actually their mouths. They're also able to survive in incredibly extreme conditions, such as intense radiation or freezing temperatures, by shriveling up into a dry ball called a ton, entering a deep state of hibernation. It's this resilience that makes them such an interesting animal. In fact, some scientists even say they could be Earth's first interstellar explorers. Yeah, I remember in 2019 when there was a spacecraft full of tardigrades that actually crashed on the moon. And there was all this speculation that they could have survived and, who knows, maybe developed a tiny microscopic moon colony. (laughs) I still kind of wonder what's going on with them. Like, we should check up on them at some point. But anyway, you mentioned New Insights, Chen. How are tardigrades able to do this magical hibernation transformation? Yeah, so that's the exact question that researchers have finally answered. In their experiments, they got a load of tardigrades and induced ton states by exposing them to either high levels of salt, sugar or hydrogen peroxide or to temperatures of around minus 80 degrees Celsius, which is about minus 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Under these pretty stressful extreme conditions, tardigrades produce these molecules called oxygen-free radicals, which are very reactive and therefore can be pretty harmful. Closer observation found that these free radicals go on to oxidize these amino acids called cysteine, one of the building blocks of proteins in the body. This changes the structure and function of the proteins, which tells the tardigrades to enter a dormant state. In lab experiments, researchers found that preventing cysteine from being oxidized also prevented the tardigrades from entering a tonne state. So it's pretty clear this is the chemical pathway that kicks it all off. 
Okay, so this amino acid cysteine kind of acts like a molecular sensor, telling tardigrades when there's too many free radicals being produced and that the environment is becoming too dangerous, sort of like alarm siren for them. Yeah, exactly. So what's crucial is that this process is reversible. When environmental conditions calm down, the researchers find that the cysteine was no longer oxidised, indicating to the tardigrades that it was safe to wake up again. So we finally know then how tardigrades can survive such extreme conditions. Is there anything else that we can learn from all of this? Can I learn to enter a ton state next time I'm too stressed? <laughs> well, there actually is lots to learn. A better understanding of the hibernation process in tardigrades and other animals in general could help us understand the aging process in humans and even how to achieve long-term space travel, according to the researchers. Though maybe not with a literal tardigrade-like tongue. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're currently listening on. Plus, if you like the wonderful stories we're bringing you, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out and get us to more people. We'll be back next week, but that's bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.